0: Assalamualaikum Alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 520 Submarines and Americans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Frustrated with the high casualties of the war, Great Britain elects David Lloyd George as Prime Minister in 1916. New Prime Minister Lloyd George believes defeating the Ottomans is critical to winning the war. A staunch supporter of the Zionist movement, he refocuses the nation's efforts on the Middle East. The British make significant gains in Sinai and Mesopotamia, culminating with the capture of Baghdad in March 1917. Outnumbered and desperate, Germany looks for a way to bring the war to a quick end. And with that, let's begin our discussion of America's entry into the war. American Perceptions of the War Throughout the war, most of the world, including the United States, viewed Germany as the aggressor. And to understand this perception, let's briefly go over how the war started in the first place. In 1914, Serbia was an unwilling member of the Austria-Hungary Kingdom. Gavrilo Princip, a Serbian nationalist, assassinated the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie. Austria-Hungary eventually declared war on Serbia. Russia, the self-proclaimed protector of the Serbs, declared war on Austria-Hungary in retaliation. Germany, which had a military alliance with Austria-Hungary, then declared war on Russia. Wary of Germany's industrial and military might, France had an alliance with Russia. When Germany declared war on Russia, France had to declare war on Germany. Now Germany found itself at war on two fronts, Russia to the east and France to the west. But Germany knew this situation might arise one day and had long since prepared for it. The Schlieffen Plan was a German strategy meant to bring victory in case of war against both Russia and France. Since it would take longer for Russia to mobilize, the plan called on Germany to quickly overwhelm and occupy France while keeping Russia at bay. Once France had been subdued, Germany could focus all its might against Russia. France had very strong defenses along its border with Germany. In order to invade northern France, parts of the German military had to go through Belgium, which was a neutral nation. And Belgium refused to allow Germany to pass through its borders to attack France. Despite the international backlash, Germany invaded and occupied Belgium on its way to invading France. During its occupation of Belgium, Germany committed various atrocities including killing over 5,000 civilians. The British had an agreement to protect Belgium, which Germany hoped they'd ignore. They did not. Its invasion of a neutral nation and the subsequent terrorizing of its civilian populace painted a picture of an aggressive, brutal German empire. Even though the British press exaggerated some of Germany's actions, there was some truth to them. This portrayal impacted the perception Americans had of the war. From the beginning of World War I, most Americans saw Germany as the aggressor and favored the allied powers. However, most Americans also preferred to stay out of the war. Prior to the two world wars, the United States had always adhered to a strict isolationist policy. Isolationism was instilled early in the nation's history when President George Washington refused to intervene in France's wars against Great Britain in 1793. Apart from another war against Great Britain in 1812 and a war against Spain in 1898, the United States tried to stay out of European affairs. This desire increased with the onset of the Great War. The high casualty rate and needless slaughter were enough to convince most Americans they wanted nothing to do with this war. There were also many German and Irish immigrants living in the United States that tempered the desire to go to war. German Americans, primarily living in the Midwestern states, were an important voting block that encouraged the country to remain neutral and most Irish immigrants, while not necessarily pro-German, were still anti-British. They may not have supported Germany, but they did not want to fight on behalf of Great Britain either. The war was also good for business, which was another reason to remain neutral. Britain and France needed the United States for both money and supplies. American banks provided large loans to both nations. Britain and France would then use these loans to purchase supplies and raw materials from American firms. American companies also traded with Germany, but it was in a much smaller capacity. Since Great Britain had the most powerful navy in the world, they could easily ship supplies across the Atlantic. Germany just could not do the same. What little commerce Germany could conduct with the United States Ended with the sinking of the Lusitania. The HMS Lusitania Germany's only naval access was through the North Sea. Since the beginning of the war, Great Britain had imposed a naval blockade on Germany, preventing food from entering the country. In response to this blockade, Germany began deploying more submarines, also known as U-boats. Great Britain had some submarines but did not invest in them the way Germany did. The British were dismissive of submarine warfare and preferred to rely on surface naval power. Britain's arrogance gave Germany an advantage at sea where they should not have had one. With no other means to combat Britain's more powerful navy, Germany adopted a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. And in these early days of the war, effective countermeasures to submarine attacks were nonexistent. Unrestricted submarine warfare meant Germany did not just attack military vessels. They considered any ship, even civilian ships, flying an enemy flag to be a legitimate target. And while these attacks led to thousands of civilian deaths, Germany felt they were within their right. Many of these civilian ships carried supplies and even weapons between the U.S. and Britain. And one of these civilian ships that Germany attacked was the Lusitania. The HMS Lusitania was a British passenger ship which left Liverpool, England on April 17, 1915, arriving in New York City on April 24th. Two days before the Lusitania arrived in New York, Germany placed an ad in American newspapers which read as follows: quote, "Notice" Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that, in accordance with the formal notice given by the Imperial German Government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travellers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk imperial german embassy washington d c april twenty second nineteen fifteen despite these warnings. Nearly 2,000 passengers boarded the Lusitania for its return voyage to England on May 1, 1915. On May 7, 1915, the Lusitania was about 100 miles south of Ireland. Captain Walter Schwieger of the German U-boat SMU-20 spotted the ship through his periscope and recognized her as a British vessel. He gave the order and the submarine surfaced and fired a single torpedo.
1: However, there is this accumulation of really interesting uh, evidence about that. You know, the Lusitania was essentially left completely unprotected, even though everybody knew this ship was was coming. It was foremost in the, in the sort of foremost in, in, in the sort of. Thinking of, of the world, if you will, because of the, because of the warning placed in the papers, because uh, of a variety of things, and here it was left completely unprotected. There's so much evidence on one side saying that saying this this might have been deliberate, but when you if you were to try to use this evidence in a court of law to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was in fact a conspiracy, you couldn't. You couldn't. However. If you do the Newell hypothesis when scientists, you know, when you try to prove something by disproving it, if you try to take the same body of information and prove that there was not a conspiracy, you can't do that either.
0: The torpedo struck the side of the Lusitania, blowing a gaping hole in its starboard side. Water rushed into the breach, causing the ship to list 10 degrees to the side. Less than a minute later, munitions the Lusitania was secretly shipping to Britain caught fire and exploded. The explosion knocked out the ship's power and disabled the elevator from the lower decks. Dozens of crew members were trapped below deck as the water continued to rise. Many of these doomed crew members were responsible for emergency evacuations. This made the situation up top even more hectic. Above deck... Crew members and frantic passengers desperately scrambled to launch the lifeboats. But the water filling up the lower decks continued to tilt the ship to one side. As the Lusitania tilted, the heavy lifeboats slid uncontrollably across the decks, killing and maiming as they went. One lifeboat flew overboard, smashed into the hull and shattered to pieces when it hit the sea. Another lifeboat, full of passengers, flipped over as it was being lowered, dumping everyone into the water. A third lifeboat did make it safely to sea with its passengers, but another man tried to leap aboard from the sinking ship and flipped it over with everyone inside. It is impossible to know how many lives were lost to the incompetence of the crew or the fear of the passengers. What we do know is that the Lusitania went down within 18 minutes. Of the nearly 2,000 crew and passengers aboard, 761 survived. Over a thousand people were killed, mostly civilians, including 114 Americans. The global reaction was swift and sharp. Most of the world condemned Germany for the attack. Britain called it a war crime. The United States condemned the attack and demanded Germany stop attacking civilian ships. Even Germany's allies, the Ottomans and the Austrians, condemned the attack. Public opinion in the United States quickly turned against Germany. Historically isolationist Americans were now calling for war. Several American companies cut ties with Germany, further limiting their access to American goods. Despite all this, President Woodrow Wilson refused to declare war. After the blowback of the Lusitania, Germany promised to scale back its submarine warfare and limit their attacks to British ships operating in the North Sea. The Zimmerman Telegram Germany kept its promise for about two years. However, limited submarine warfare severely crippled Germany's ability to counter the superior British Navy. And by early 1917, Germany had to face a grim reality. It was becoming obvious they could not win this war. Of all the central powers, including Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria, Germany was the strongest. In terms of fighting, they were doing most of the heavy lifting but Germany and the other central powers were outnumbered by the Entente powers and their vast colonial empires. While the central powers were limited to the populations within their borders, Britain and France could rely on millions of additional soldiers from their colonies in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Furthermore, Britain's blockade of Germany's ports had crippled its economy. With only a few months' food stores left, Germany was facing starvation and getting desperate. In January 1917, Germany's war leaders urged the Kaiser to resume unlimited submarine warfare. If they inflicted enough pain on Great Britain, they argued, it might force them to the negotiating table. The Kaiser agreed and prepared to announce this change in policy on February 1, 1917. But there was just one problem. President Woodrow Wilson had made it clear the United States would not tolerate any more American deaths from German submarines. A resumption of unrestricted submarine attacks would eventually bring the United States into the war. To counter this, Germany went looking for an ally across the Atlantic. German Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmerman sent a telegram to the German embassy in Mexico. The telegram proposed a military alliance between Germany and Mexico if the United States entered the war on the side of the Entente powers. Zimmerman promised Mexico financial assistance and the return of territory lost during its war with the United States 70 years earlier. This would include the states of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The plan was for Mexico to keep the United States too busy to send troops across the Atlantic. This would allow Germany to deal with its adversaries in Europe. Transatlantic telegraph lines between Europe and North America had existed for decades, the first one being laid in 1858. However, Great Britain had cut Germany's undersea cables near the beginning of the war. As such, Germany had to use American cables to communicate with nations on the other side of the Atlantic. These American cables, however, ran through British relay stations which allowed the British to monitor every message the Germans sent. Of course, the Germans knew this, so they encoded their transatlantic communications. What they did not know was that Britain had already cracked their code. Arthur Zimmerman sent his telegram to Mexico on January 19, 1917. Germany announced its decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare on February first. The British delivered Zimmerman's decoded message to the U.S. Embassy in London on February nineteenth. President Woodrow Wilson received a copy of the message on February 23rd. On February 28, 1917, Zimmerman's telegram was released to American newspapers, and the American people went berserk. American public and political opinion was already decidedly against Germany, but the drumbeats for war had died down since the sinking of the Lusitania two years earlier. Since its announcement of unrestricted submarine warfare, Germany had already sunk three ships carrying American passengers. And now, with the release of the Zimmerman telegram, the clamor for war was back and louder than ever. And this time, the president was not concerned about getting reelected. Woodrow Wilson had won a second term by running on the campaign that he'd kept the U.S. out of the war. But after Germany's latest actions, he felt it was time for the United States to end its policy of isolationism. On April 2, 1917, President Wilson asked Congress to declare war on Germany. And on April 6, the United States entered the war to end all wars. President Woodrow Wilson Woodrow Wilson was born in 1856 in Virginia when slavery was still legal in the United States. His father was an ordained Presbyterian minister and a theology professor. His parents supported the Confederacy during the Civil War, which shaped Woodrow Wilson's attitude towards race relations. Woodrow Wilson was an academic who wrote several books on history and political science. He earned a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins and taught at two different universities before becoming president of Princeton University in 1902. In 1911, he became governor of New Jersey. Woodrow Wilson was considered progressive for his time, fighting against government corruption and working to break up monopolies.
1: Now we don't want to disturb the industry of the country. We are not here to destroy the industry which these men have built up but we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people which these men have established and which makes it impossible that we should give ourselves a free hand in the service of the people. There are two programs. The democratic program is this, to see to it that competition is so regulated that the big fellow cannot put the little fellow out of business for he has been putting the little fellow out of business for the last half generation.
0: Woodrow Wilson ran for president in 1912, defeating a Republican Party split between Teddy Roosevelt and Howard Taft. Barely a year and a half into his first term, war broke out in Europe and the United States looked in shock at the carnage. When the United States joined the war, President Wilson's critics claimed he was fighting to protect and expand the British and French empires. Wilson denied these accusations, insisting the United States was fighting to make the world safe for democracy. Yet, when he learned about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, he suppressed the information, successfully keeping it out of the press. Like many other leaders of his time, Woodrow Wilson had a nuanced idea of democracy. He supported democracy and self-determination for the Serbs and the Armenians and European Jews. But he was not so open-minded when it came to Arabs, Indians, or even African Americans in his own country. The United States would go on to declare war against Austria-Hungary later that year. However, it never formally declared war on the Ottoman Empire. Woodrow Wilson had an overall negative attitude towards the Ottoman Empire and considered including them in his declaration of war. And just like the British and the French, he wanted to dismantle the empire into smaller pieces. Nonetheless, there were two key reasons why Woodrow Wilson did not target the Ottomans. First, he wanted to limit the scope of American involvement to the European theater and Germany's aggression. The United States had no quarrel with the Ottoman Empire and therefore no reason to go to war against it and second, there were American missionaries within Ottoman territory. Declaring war against the Ottomans could potentially put these missionaries in danger. Hence, due to the United States' late entry into the war, its limited scope of involvement, and reluctance to declare war on the Ottomans, the two countries never traded shots. Alexander Parvis With the US's declaration of war, things were looking bad for the Central Powers. Of course, Mexico rejected the alliance proposal, leaving Germany with a new enemy and no new friends. And though it was ultimately inconsequential, the United States' declaration of war had ripple effects in the Americas. Cuba and Panama both declared war on Germany the day after the United States. Meanwhile, Brazil Bolivia, and Peru all severed relations with Germany. Germany still had one last hope, a slight alteration to its Schlieffen plan from years before. Germany believed it would take at least a year for the United States to recruit, train, and transport hundreds of thousands of soldiers to Europe. Germany had to knock Britain or France out of the war before the Americans arrived. But fighting a war on two fronts made that nearly impossible. If they could get Russia out of the war, then they could focus all their attention on the Western Front and hopefully force France or Great Britain to sue for peace. And their best hope for getting Russia out of the war was Alexander Parvis. Alexander Parvus was a Russian-Jewish Marxist who wanted to overthrow the Tsar and destroy the Romanov dynasty. A few years before the war broke out, he was accused of sedition and exile from Russia. While in exile, Parvus traveled through Europe, taking up with various revolutionary groups. He eventually settled in Istanbul where he became friends with members of the Young Turks. And that's where he was when the war began in 1914. Parvis's connections with the Young Turks got him a meeting with officials from the German government in 1915. Parvis convinced the Germans that with their help, he could bring down the Romanov dynasty in Russia. Though it was a long shot, the Germans agreed to help Parvis organize Russian revolutionaries. One of these revolutionaries was another Marxist exile named Vladimir Lenin. Lenin opposed the war, believing it was the ultimate consequence of rampant global capitalism. Germany funneled money to Parvis, who sent it on to Lenin. Vladimir Lenin used that money to fund communist newspapers and propaganda back in Russia. Lenin also had a small Marxist following in Russia, who called themselves the Majoritarians or Bolsheviki in Russian. And as the war began to take its toll on Russia, these German-funded Russian Marxist revolutionaries were starting to look very popular. In the next episode, we'll discuss the sweeping changes that take place in Russia and France and how they impacted the Ottoman Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a 5-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Karsiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa As-salamu alaykum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive, the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And today we are continuing our series on the brief caliphate of Ibn Zubayr and his fight against the Umayyads. And before we go too much further, just want to wish an Mubarak for those of you who are celebrating Eid. Um, I am uh, currently t- well I'm recording this episode on Monday night. this is uh, June 3rd 2019 the for many people that you will be celebrating Edel fitr tomorrow June 4th but for many people you are not. Whether you are or whether you are not, I probably won't speak to you again until next week, inshallah. And actually, maybe not even then. I'll explain that later. But the point is that uh, Eid Mubarak, enjoy your Eid, whether you are celebrating either on Tuesday or Wednesday. Alhamdulillah, hope you have a blessed Eid, inshallah. So let's go into this episode, this battle between this long drawn-out war between Ibn Zubayr and the Umayyads. Before we get started, let's do a brief recap of the previous episode. We mentioned how Orbeidullah ibn Ziyad, who was responsible for the massacre at Karbala, where Hussein ibn Ali was killed. We mentioned how he lost control of Basra in Iraq. And he lost it basically because he was beaten uh, and chased out of uh, out of Iraq by Ibn Zubair's supporters, and Ibn Zubair's supporters then took over Kufa as well. So Ubaydullah ibn Ziyad had nowhere to go, and he wound up fleeing Iraq completely and heading for Syria. And that was pretty much the previous episode. So now let's get into this episode, and this episode is pretty much going to lead up to the Battle of Majrahit, and we shall see the events that that uh, as they as they unfold. Briefly, let's discuss the death of Muawiyah ibn Yazid. We have mentioned him before. Muawiyah ibn Yazid, he was the son of Yazid ibn Muawiyah. He died um, just a few months after his father did. Muawiyah ibn Yazid did not really want to be caliph he was a very sickly person as his sickness worsened the people began to encourage him to choose a successor but he was actually a very pious person did not want to do that and he wound up just leaving the whole thing alone and as we mentioned he died a little bit after his father and his death is what I want to say started all the turmoil because it actually started with his father but now the Umayyads don't have a caliph they don't have a leader they don't have anyone to take over who they can prop up as the uh, caliph or the successor at this point. And so there is a vacuum, and Ibn Zubair was very quickly and very rapidly filling that vacuum. Ibn Zubair already has the Hejaz, where he has Mecca and Medina. Mecca and Medina mostly uh, the, has most of the, the more pious. Uh, People the, or the most pious Muslims are generally there, or perhaps a better way of saying is that the people in Mecca, Mecca and Medina, were more serious about the religion and generally speaking, more pious than the other Muslims in the in the in the empire. Ibn Zubair also had Iraq, as we mentioned, when Ubayd Ibn Ziyad was chased out, and so now he only has to give Syria or, and the northern por- portions of the empire, which included Egypt as well. And he actually did wind up taking Egypt. He uh, appointed a man named Abdurrahman ibn Jahdam, who was from the fifty clan of the Quraysh. Uh, ibn Zubair appointed him as the governor of Egypt. And the Banu Umayyah who were in Egypt were forced to leave Egypt, and they all, they settled in Palmyra along with the uh, Banu Umayyah who were forced to leave the Hejaz. This happened during the time of uh, during the just before the. Battle of al harra where the Syrians came down to wound up pillaging Medina. The Banu Umayyad had already been expelled during that period of time, and that is when most of them settled in Palmyra, which is about 120 miles northeast of Damascus. So Ibn Zubayr now has Egypt, he has the Hijaz, and he has Iraq. Now it's just a matter of him getting Syria. And Syria is, of course, the stronghold of the Umayyads, Syria was also divided into 5 military districts and Ibn Zubair had 3 of these 5 military districts. We'll go through them now.